Good morning, everyone. This morning, we're continuing in our series, Summer Bible Jam. And how many of, well, several of you may not have been here during this particular series, but every summer, we want to make sure that we double down and emphasize the necessity and the significance of our reading and meditating upon of our understanding, knowledge of, and obedience to God's word. It's central. And so we take this opportunity during the summer to do this. And this summer we're looking at various characters in the word and not looking at them so much about the personality or the ability or the activity of that character herself or himself but looking beyond that and seeing in that person in what he says and what she does and where that person goes and etc we're looking beyond that if you would behind the spiritual curtain to see the revelation of God And that's the significance because as God worked and was present and was faithful and was powerful and was gracious and was good and loving in their lives, so also he is in the lives of his people today. Because you may remember we read the word that God tells us about himself in Malachi. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I do not change. So we're looking at the activities and the person and the work and the purpose, the will of him who does not change as revealed in the activities of the people in the Old Testament, bringing it forward into our own lives. And this morning, as we will continue in on the second part of this last week, Pastor Keith opened our understanding to Jeremiah. We're going back into the prophetic book of Jeremiah, but we're going to do so under the understanding or within the context of celebrating communion this morning. So as we begin, I would like if you have a Bible with you, and hopefully everyone brings a Bible and I'm old-fashioned, I mean a real Bible. But at any rate, if you were to turn to Luke 22.20, Luke 22.20, and it's interesting, when we read so much of what we read in the Bible, we don't understand, we don't catch, we don't comprehend, we don't see the the vast significance and comprehensiveness of a statement, of a word, of a phrase. And so, in this statement, Jesus says something that absolutely encapsulates all of the purpose of God from the very beginning in Genesis 1-1 to the very end in the last verse of Revelation 22. 
And at communion, you remember that last meal that Jesus took with his disciples before he was betrayed, before he was arrested, before he was crucified, and before he was died and was buried. He says this during the meal, Luke twenty two twenty. This cup is poured out for you, that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So what we're going to talk about this morning is absolutely relevant to communion. In fact, it's the heart of what we celebrate in communion in the Lord's Supper. It's the heart of it. But also, it's not only the heart of what we celebrate in communion. It is the very center piece of God's means of bringing us into a forever fellowship relationship with him. And that activity, that work, is entitled variously in the Old Testament and in the New. But this morning we're going to emphasize the term or the title, New Covenant. And the reason we're going to do that is because this is the term that God uses to communicate the new covenant to Jeremiah and for us. And so, why did Jesus use the term new covenant? Well, let's open our Bibles now to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Now, there's a lot that has gone on before this. And there are certain verses that are key. Now, that does not mean that other verses are not, but there are certain verses that stand out as more significant and trumpet the central work of God more clearly than other verses. And this is one of those set of verses. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Now, what's happening? This is, I don't remember the exact date. I'm not sure if we know his exact date for the writing of this particular passage. But it's around at least a year or two or so before the Babylonians come in to destroy Jerusalem and the temple and take the people of God into captivity. So, That happens in two stages, but the stage that we're talking about here is in 586 B.C. Now, in order to get a feel for this, let's remember this. That about 1500 or so B.C., I don't remember exactly because my calendar wasn't that good on that day. Some of you don't know what I was saying there. And... About 1500 B.C., the people of God were in Egypt in what the Bible calls the house of bondage and slavery. And the Lord has heard their cry. And in Exodus 3, verse 8, he says something that summarizes his activity in us. He says, I will Come down. And I will come down to be with my people. 
to deliver them and to establish them as my people forever. And so you may have seen the movie of the Ten Commandments. And the final result is that the people of Israel, because of the Passover and because of the ten plagues, are delivered out of the hand of Pharaoh. And a month later, they wind up in the mountains of Sinai. And so what does the Lord do in Sinai? He gives what is called the Decalogue, the ten words, the ten commandments. You'll find that in Exodus chapter 20, and it's repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And then associated with this law, he gives what is also called the Levitical legislation. Because knowing that the people will not be able to to obey the law of God, to keep the commandments faithfully and continually and accurately, God provides a means of maintaining his people as a people, maintaining his own fellowship, and protecting his relationship with these people, even in the midst of their disobedience, through the administration of the sacrifices of innocent animals as mediated by the priests. Now that's the heart of the law. The law is given as the revelation, the declaration of what our lives will look like if we are a people of God's love and grace. And so as we begin this morning, just want to make sure we hear something. Because there's a lot of foolishness out there about God's word, perhaps in this particular category. The law that was given in Exodus is because of God's loving kindness and goodness to his people. You just read the beginning of it. In chapter 20, and the Lord declares himself loving kindness, good. And so, the law is the Old Testament work of God's grace and love for his people, giving it to them for the purpose of administering his presence with them. And administering his presence in such a way... That if they sin, or rather when they sin, when they break one of the Ten Commandments, they may be able to be maintained by the shedding of the blood of an animal as payment for that sin. And so in this way, God is with his people. And God has provided a way for his people to be made fit for his presence and for his worship. This is what is called the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant. And it is the ruling or governing method of God in administering the 
blessings of his presence for the welfare of his people throughout the Old Testament. And so you can imagine 1500 B.C., the Old Covenant is given to Israel. God's administrative way of maintaining his people. And then a thousand years, give or take a year, a thousand years, Israel has been under the old covenant administration. A thousand years. And by the time we come to Jeremiah, I know that I'm not traveling with you with the notes really well right now, but sometimes I just feel I just need to move away from them if you don't mind, so it'll be okay. Don't try to follow where is he right now. I don't know where I am in my notes. I haven't looked at them yet. A thousand years. I want to get a feel for this. We want to feel a thousand years. We have been worshiping God. We have been ministered to by God. We have been protected, led, provided for, blessed. A thousand years. Why? Because God has graciously called us who were nobodies out from among all the nations. You see that in Deuteronomy 7. And has given us the most precious, incredibly merciful method of experiencing his presence. That's grace. Would you agree? You see, there's nothing ungraceful about the law. Amen? It is The revelation of God's good love and character for us. And then traveling down the road, Israel leaves Sinai, and you know some of the history. And immediately, the law is given. And what chapter is this? Exodus what? 20, remember? And then immediately, what happens that is such a horrible activity? Moses is on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and he ain't here, and we don't know where he is, and he's died somewhere, and an animal ate him, and we need to do something else. Let's make a golden calf in the face of having already received the old covenant. Let's make a calf. And then years go by. And there's seasons of disobedience and seasons of obedience. And it's like the wave of the sea. And then we come a thousand years from Moses under the old covenant. And Israel is in its worst place. The people have rejected because of their disobedience to God. His presence. 
they have rejected because of their disobedience to, to God. His blessing, his mercy, all in preference for something about and for themselves. It's called sin. And so the issue has become so bad that the Lord gives Jeremiah a word. And this word precedes the utter destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and in their understanding at the time, the utter destruction and hopelessness of God ever being with them again. Because he's only with them through the sacrificial system, which occurs only in the temple. Now you can imagine what that must be like. And so a thousand years from Moses, we read these words in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In other words, all the people of God. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write my law on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the Lord for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord why how would this happen for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, what had happened? What had happened? What was wrong with the old covenant? Nothing. The old covenant was perfect in its purpose of achieving God's will for his people. But when God gave the old covenant, the covenant of law, which was to be obeyed by a people who were not able to keep it in a way that was consistently pleasing and as a result, had to depend on a continual sacrificial system. As a result, ever keeping their failures before them, day after day after day, you had to sacrifice another animal for what you did yesterday, and another one, whatever, and whatever, and then one for the whole nation once a year on the Day of Atonement. You see, the Old Covenant was sufficient in the way God created it to be sufficient. 
What does that mean? God created the old covenant only to be a temporary means of administering his presence and fellowship among his people. As such, the old covenant being a temporary means was always anticipating that which would be permanent. So that in the old covenant, that which was adhered to and practiced and understood, obedience and the shedding of blood for forgiveness, that which was done in the old covenant as a temporary measure would be fulfilled in the new covenant as a permanent measure. Now, it's interesting. When we speak of new covenant, when do we believe the new covenant was created? When was the new covenant in God's mind created? It had always been. Because the reason why the people were able to be maintained as God's people under the old covenant was only and always because of the new covenant that was coming. And so what happened was that the temporary nature of the old covenant prophesied by Jeremiah as the coming of the new covenant, God would be fulfilling and completing that which he began and was foreshadowing in the old to be brought to its full fruition in the new. So that which was promised under the old but never able to reach its zenith because of man's failure was going to then be accomplished in the new covenant. And so by the time we come to Jeremiah 31, or all of Jeremiah in fact, this is what had happened to provoke the Lord's anger and the judgment against, of God against the nation. Listen to these words in 2 Kings 17 verse 7 and a few other verses. This occurred, what occurred? This desolation and destruction of Judah, Jerusalem, and even of the ten lost tribes of Israel previously. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. And walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them. You shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them to serve them or to sacrifice to them. And you shall not forget the covenant that I have made with you. Verse 40 of Second Kings 17 is one of the most instructive and sobering verses in all the Bible. Second. Kings 17 verse 40. God gives them all of this and he's telling them here's what you did and here's what I did and here how you did this and you didn't do that and, you, and I did this and I did that and then it said they would not listen. They would not listen. And as a result calamity came upon them. Total destruction. 
You see, it was inevitable when any of God's blessings depend upon man's disobedience, um, the obedience that the covenant will fail. The covenant that God made with Israel in the old covenant, God promised, here is who I am, this is who I am, and this is what I will do. I will do one, two, three, and I will give you these blessings, and I will bless you, and I will do this, and I will be with you, and your land will produce its uh, fruit, and I will protect you, and etc. This is what I'm going to do. And so receiving all of the benefits of God under the old covenant depended upon man's obedience. And disobedience brought about what is called the curse. All of these curses, all of these things that you're going to experience if you don't obey me. And so it was a temporary covenant. Why? Because God was waiting for the fullness of time. Now, don't ask me why immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, why he didn't send the Messiah and save the world at that point. But he didn't. And so the difficulty with the old covenant was with our weakness, our inability, our lack of desire and will to obey God's will. But see, it was never God's plan that his presence would ever depend upon fallen humanity, which it was in the Old Testament. The Old Covenant depended upon man's obedience for the presence of God in this blessing way. But this was never God's permanent solution. His solution cannot be to depend upon our fallenness. It cannot be depending upon our weakness, our faults, our failures, our sin. cannot be that way. If ever it is that way, there will always be failure and we will never be able to experience what God has for us. Hopefully we're listening concerning something about who we are today in Christ. You see, it was always God's plan to have a covenant that depended upon himself, upon his own ability and perfect obedience. This was the distinction between the two covenants. Both of them had a law to obey. And both of them required the shedding of blood where there was unforgive. I'm sorry, where there was sin. But in the old covenant, man's duty was to obey. And if he disobeyed, then man's duty was to make a sacrifice. In the old covenant, the duty of fallen humanity now will rest on someone else. And the activity of fallen humanity will rest on someone else for its accomplishment. And the sacrificing of animals that occurred in the Old Testament for the putting away of sin would fall upon someone else in the New Covenant for the total forgiveness of sin. So when was the New Covenant inaugurated? It's always been God's way. The moment we hear these first words of Genesis, in the beginning God created. When we read those verses, everything is set in motion by God. 
according to his eternal decree that this is what he will do. Therefore, he does it that way. Not because he has to do it that way as a result of something external to himself, but because of the integrity of his own will in relation to his own character. And so when he said, when you read, in the beginning God created, at that moment, the old covenant, I'm sorry, the new covenant was the great umbrella, if you would, the great bow in the sky, the great rainbow of God's faithfulness. When he creates to have a people who, when they sin or maintain through a system that is temporary, depending upon them, so that he comes to the place of bringing about the anticipated and the guaranteed new covenant, which will finally, fully, and forever take care of the issue of the disobedience of his people, so that they may experience his presence and his blessings forever. Now, what does this mean? In Luke chapter 2, all is quiet on the Western Front. There are a bunch of shepherds out there taking care of their sheep by night. And they're outside the city of Jerusalem. It's the time probably of the Passover rather than winter, but whatever. And suddenly, there is an angelic appearance. Suddenly, the sky lights up. And the shepherds see the angels. And they are afraid. And the angel says to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a son. And you shall find the babe wrapped, remember, in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger. And suddenly there was with the angel what? A multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, what? Hmm? Say it again. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace with those with whom he is well pleased. What is happening? In a young girl named Mary, the Holy Spirit has conceived a child. And this one who is the eternal God the Son, the eternal God the Son, is in a mysterious way conceived into the womb of Mary, taking to himself a human body and soul so that a child is born. And in this child resides the very nature of the Son of God and the nature of humanity. And this man... This man will himself on his own under the power of the Spirit by himself he will live under the stipulations of the old covenant. 
and he will keep every single law of God without any sin whatsoever. And he will do what Adam was supposed to do but failed to do, and he will do what God has always required of humanity. That in order for me to dwell with you in the way that I want to dwell with you and the way that you need me to dwell with you, you must be a people of perfect obedience. Now, stand please this morning if you have literally, physically, in a living way, lived perfectly. Nobody. Here is the requirement of God. Absolutely not even one sin. Because even one sin by one man at one time brought down the whole cosmos. Now, if that's true, what kind of hope do we have? All of us being born in sin and in the grips of sin and under the control and the authority of sin through the manipulation and power of Satan in our flesh. See, how can a perfect God, absolute pure righteousness, have the kind of intimate fellowship with a people who are polluted, even with one sin, even one sin, because once polluted with one sin, the word righteous becomes what word? Unrighteous. So how is God going to remedy this? Well, he's going to remedy it the way he's always planned to remedy it. This has been his eternal plan before the foundation of the world. This didn't catch God off, off of balance. This is, his, this is his plan. This is why he created in the first place to bring us to the place of being in a new covenant relationship with him forever. This is why the creation. Hmm. So a man is born. A child is born and a man lives. And he keeps the law of God perfectly. In every sense, tempted like we are, yet without any sin. So now the obedience requirement of God under the covenant of law or Sinai has been kept. It's kept. Now there is a man who has perfectly kept all the law. Now, what remains? There were two parts of the covenant. Remember, there were the the law plus the sacrifices for the disobedience. So this one who is the eternal son having become a man takes to himself as the innocent, uncorrupted, sinless man. Man, a man who hasn't sinned. A man, a human being who has not sinned. A human being who hasn't sinned. And he willingly and joyfully, Hebrews 12 too, takes to himself all the punishment of all of God's people from Adam and Eve all the way to the last one who will be saved in the future. 
And he takes all the corruption and all the penalty and all the punishment onto his shoulders. Some of you may know, know I refer to him as our great Shechem. Burden bearer. And he takes to himself what all the sacrifices foreshadowed and anticipated and guaranteed. Now, how many, how many animals died during all those years? How many do you think? Millions. Millions of animals. And yet, the Bible says that the blood of goats and animals can never atone for sin. All of that blood put together could not achieve what a molecule of the blood of Christ achieved. But it all was applied by God to the good of the people as a temporary measure of making them fit for his presence because it anticipated and would be fulfilled in the death of Christ. You remember he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I have come to do what? To fulfill it. And when Jesus is talking about the law, he's talking about the law of the old covenant. He's talking about fulfilling the law with perfect obedience and then fulfilling the means and the, the necessity and the purpose of the sacrificial system in his own death. So let's go back and look at Jeremiah one more time. Jeremiah 31, 31 and 34. Behold, the days are coming. Now we're looking forward about 500 years into the future. The days are coming. Now, isn't it interesting the Lord says the days and not the years? The days are coming. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And I'm not going to be like the other covenant. But this covenant, verse 33, I will make with the house after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. You see another elaboration of this in Ezekiel who was a prophet to Israel in the nation of Babylon after the nation, after many of those people were taken out of uh, Judah into captivity, Ezekiel, Daniel, you remember, and others went into captivity. And the Lord gave Ezekiel all kinds of visions and prophecies, etc., and explanations about what has happened. But in Ezekiel 36, verse 5 to 20, 25 to 27, he says, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to sprinkle these people with water. I'm going to take out the hard, stony heart, that hard heart of sin that refuses God and they cannot obey God, and I'm going to give them a new heart of flesh. And they're going to obey me. Why? Why? Because I'm going to put my spirit within them. Now, what does that mean? I will write my law upon their heart. Now, you see... What has changed here is the law hasn't changed. James, the law hasn't changed. Perry, the law hasn't changed. 
The law hasn't changed. What's changed is the position of the law. Previously under the old covenant, the law was external to us and we were required to obey it. Almost as an alien thing to us. And when we disobeyed, we had the sacrificial system. And many people did a pretty good job, I suppose, of obedience. But now, the, the disposition of the law. Let me say it this way. The heart of the law was given to us as a new heart. And do you remember what the heart of the law is? The heart of the law is in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, only Yahweh is our God. And verse 5, and you shall love the Lord your God. Remember that? And then in Numbers nineteen eighteen. I think it's Numbers 19, 18. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, that was never a disposition that was inside of the people. And that's the disposition of God in relation to who he is and how to walk out that relationship with him and with one another. Because you see, this is the law of God's love. And so when the Holy Spirit resides in us, being given to each one who confesses Jesus Christ as Savior, confessing a need to be forgiven, understanding by the Spirit that I have come to a revelation that I am a sinner and that I cannot even hope to have eternal life without the blood of Jesus cleansing me and without receiving that as God's gift. All of that comes to us by the gift of the Spirit. And so what do we have in the new covenant? Jeremiah says, No longer shall each one of you teach his neighbor and his brother know the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So what happens? Remember what I said. I said that Jesus is the only man, and I want to emphasize that word man with a capital M, who lived a life without any sin. Now, now think about it. Just think about it. Is that an amazing statement or not? How many of you find that to be an amazing statement? It's like, it's impossible. Is there anyone in here that you think you could live the rest of the day without sinning? Anyone. Yet he lived in circumstances very often much worse than ours. Yet without sinning even once. And so, God has placed, listen to me, 
for everyone in here who is in the new covenant, who is a child of God, you've been born again, you've been saved. For everyone in this room who is a child of God, God has taken and placed within us the sinless, perfect perfection of his Son by the Spirit. That means this, that as Jesus has lived perfectly, those of us who have the Spirit of Jesus living in us, God now sees us as having already lived the law perfectly and sinlessly. Now, if that doesn't turn you on, you need to go home and repent. Can we say amen and praise God for that? That we have the sinless life of the Son of God in us. Can you say amen? Not for me, but for what God has done. I don't have to be preoccupied anymore with whether I'm saved and whether I'm forgiven and what's going to happen when I do this for the 57th million time a day. I don't have to be preoccupied with my relationship and my fellowship and my acceptance before God. Why? Because I am accepted in Christ. In Him. Forever. Forever. I could not work my way into Christ by my good deeds. And I don't believe that I can work my way out of Christ by my good deeds as I cling to Christ by faith. What does that mean? I will forgive their sins and their iniquities. I will remember them what? No more. What does that mean? Well... You see, what happens, um, this, is, this is a chuckle. This is not true. This is a chuckle coming up in case you don't follow me. What that means is this. Now that we're in Christ, Jackson, now that you're in Christ, now that you're in Christ, guess what? God don't no more see your sin. That's not the truth. That's not what the Bible says. There's some funny teaching out there that now every child of God, God some way is blind to your sin. Oh, did they sin? Did they sin? Did they do anything wrong? No. God has an eagle eye. And he not only sees everything, he hears everything. And he sniffs everything out. And he knows the motive and the thoughts and the intents. He knows the corruption of our flesh. He knows what we do in private. He knows what we do in public and why we do it. He knows how we pretend like this person and yet not. And we are jealous and we have elements of racism and we have animosity among us and jealousy. Amen? Any of us free of that? Practically speaking, anybody? He sees it every bit. Don't fall for the foolishness that he doesn't. That's absurd. Because how could he ever judge the deeds done in the body, which are, what does it say, Evan? Evil or good. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, I think it is. I think that's where it is. No, no. 2 Corinthians 5. How do you like that? You need to look it up for me, brother, but it's verse 10 anyway. 
It's somewhere in the Bible Paul wrote it. Once I go off step, I fall down, I can't get myself back up. That's what happens when you're old. Right? Well, what does it mean? I thought that we were forgiven and God doesn't see our sin anymore. No, that's not what he says. Look at it carefully. Look at the last part of verse 34. I will remember. Now, what is not translated in your Bible, perhaps, is the meaning there. I will remember against them. I will remember in a condemning, punishing, punitive way. I will remember that way no more your sins against you. In other words, I will never charge you with any sin that you will ever commit again. Because if I charge you with even one sin, you will be under the wrath of God forever. The word there is hell. Hell. What's the extent of our forgiveness in Christ? We read it this morning. Remember that? Colossians 2.13. Having what? Forgiven how much? All. Thank you. Thank you. I like these loudmouth men. Listen, second, second Colossians. Colossians 2.13. This is why I don't like these electronic things. In your Bible, you need to look at Colossians 2.13 and underline or circle in red ink all our sins or trespasses. All of them. So, that means this. Well, if you tell people that, I can tell you what, brother, they're going to take advantage of God. Really? Really? You think you're going to get away with everything, anything from this God? Do you really think so? I think you better think it out again. Because if that's your attitude, perhaps you need to do what Paul says in 2 Corinthians thirteen five, And the pastor said it this morning, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. See, listen to this. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. Here's a verse that needs to be very instructive for many. I can't tell you how many folks sit in our offices. And heaven can tell you this, and Ronald can, Keith can. And they will tell us the power and the control that things have over them and how they're gripped by this, that, and the other. And I understand that. And so what does Second Corinthians five seventeen say? If anyone is in Christ, now you don't have to raise your hand. Don't raise your hand in fact. So we're not trying to put any, you know, many differences here, but don't raise your hand if you're in Christ. For those of you in Christ, do you know you are? So who is this written to? Whom is it written to? To us. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new covenant. New covenant believer. He is a new creature. He's been recreated into the image of God's own Son and is now being conformed by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit through the renewing of our minds into the image of God's Son. 
The old has what? <sighs> Passed away. Behold, all things have been come what? How many things? Now, God is talking spiritually here. I still live in a rotten, decaying body. But God has so recreated us in the new covenant that I can now be totally free from any fear of condemnation from God. Romans 8, uh, Romans 8, 1. Frank Loria loves this story, Luke 15. And the young boy leaves the house and takes his inheritance and goes off and squanders it. And then in verse 17, it says, he came to his senses. <gasps> what have I done? That's the Holy Spirit. This morning, you may be sitting here, and all of a sudden you realize, <gasps> I'm not a new covenant person. I've never surrendered my life. I didn't know that even one of my sins will send me to hell forever. And I don't know whether I'm forgiven. And I don't want to be damned. And the boy came to his senses. That's the work of the Holy Spirit called being born again. And he says, I will arise and go to my father. Why? Because the Spirit is saying inside of him, get up. And so his daddy's on the hill. Now, if you had spent all your money, how many of us would be so prone to go back to our daddy? <laughs> how many of us daddies would be prone to have that son come back? Oh, boy, there's some issues in families. Oh, it's a horrible denunciation of the love of God, isn't it? Why could this boy go back? Harrison, why? Because he knew he was forgiven. The fear of condemnation was removed. He confessed his sin. Now, may I say this carefully? Confession of sin does not produce forgiveness. Repentance does not produce forgiveness. Now that's new for some of you, isn't it? The people who say, if you don't confess and repent, you're not forgiven. They didn't read the same word of God I read. Did you read that in the word of God, Evan? No. We can and do confess and repent. Listen, I am now free to confess and repent because the blood of Jesus has cleansed me from all sin. 1 John 1.7 I can go to the Father many times. And he applies the power and the effectiveness and the good of that repentance to my heart. He's not forgiving me. He is continuing me in the forgiven relationship and fellowship which I have had with him since he has applied to my heart the blood of Jesus.
means this. That because I have been freed of fear and condemnation. Because I no longer have to worry about God's wrath and punishment and retribution. Because I am free of that in Christ. I have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. 1 Corinthians 5.21 Because I am free in Christ. Because he's paid the full price. Having lived perfectly. I am now free to begin to breathe the untainted air of God's breath of love. And to begin to take into my soul the blessing and the welfare and the health and the power and the majesty of the love of God. I'm free. And now I am free to want to obey. And I'm free now that when I don't obey to go to God. And Father, I've sinned again. I'm asking you for the greater work of power and grace in my life that I may be repenting. And that your power in me will be overcoming this sin as I cooperate with your work. new how many of you don't like being called a name oh there's some bad names our society to say today there's certain names we cannot say anymore amen now as far as society is concerned I understand that but as far as a believer I don't care what name you call me if you call me anything but a forgiven son of God you are a liar If you call me anything but a forgiven son of God, you are a liar. If you were called anything but a forgiven daughter or son of God, that is a lie. Why get upset with all these foolishness of the world? Let us not be under bondage anymore to these things. Let us walk as God's free people, empowered by his blood. I will forgive their iniquity and I remember their sin against them no more. Think. I can now anticipate standing before God without any fear. No recrimination. Only the open arms of a loving Father who has loved me by sending His Son for the inauguration of the new covenant this morning we'll be participating in communion and I'd like you to open your Bibles Luke 22 14 to 20 preparatory words and instruction before we ask you to come to take the elements. This is a celebration that God 
has established in his son. That Jesus said, I want you to do this. And when you do it, I want you to remember me. And of course, all the benefits. But this, Jesus said, remember, is the blood of the new covenant. And so it's only a celebration for those who are part of the new covenant community of God in Christ. Now you may have come into church this morning and you have never really considered being born again or what that meant or being saved. You may be sitting here and you realize I have not been washed in the blood of Jesus. I've, I've just assumed I was because I went to church all my life. No. The Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, will be saved. Well, why would you call upon him? Because if you are experiencing in you your sin, your sin, even one, and you are realizing I don't know whether I'm forgiven. I don't know whether if I would even die today, I would be with God in eternity. I don't know. You may say I'm not. What I'm going to do right now is to pray. And ask everybody to be bowing your heads and pray. If you are here and that's who you are, I'm not going to ask you to do anything at all. But I'm going to pray right now for you. Father, Father, for anyone in this congregation who is not belonging to you, and you are moving upon that person's heart right now to woo them and woo him or her into your kingdom, you've caused them to realize that they have sinned much more than once and deserve eternal punishment, that they've never ever really cried out to you for forgiveness to receive the gift of eternal life by trusting that Jesus has paid the full, final, forever price. They've been to church a lot, but they've never made that decision. Father, in Jesus' name, would you lead them by saying, Father, I have sinned. Father, I deserve to die. But I right now receive the total forgiveness of Jesus because he's paid the price. I confess that Jesus is my Lord. And I thank you for forgiving me and making me a member of your new covenant community. In Jesus' name, amen.